So I ask that you would speak through me, empower me. Again, may it be as if Jesus Christ were present speaking to this congregation this morning with the same power and same authority. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've noticed that the older I get, and it's kind of appropriate right now, uh, the darker the world becomes to me. <laughs> I get up in the morning, and of course this time of year, until it's like noon, <laughs> it's dark, right? Jeez. But I mean, you're up at like five, six, or seven, it's, it's pitch black. And so our bedroom, as your bedroom would be, is dark. Now you add any shades or blinds that you may have, and it's almost completely dark. I have glasses you, you can see, and some of you have glasses as well, so I can barely see, because at my age, what's the first thing you do when you get up? You gotta go to the bathroom, right? So you, I gotta get up and I walk very cautiously, kind of like, like this, you know? <laughs> I don't step on anything or touch anything. And in fact, I was thinking that if an outside observer just could watch me walk as I get out of bed, I mean, he would only conclude that I'm a blind person. See, until I put on my glasses, I'm in the dark. And, you know, the older I get and the darker the world seems to get, um, you have to squint a little more to see things. Love getting old, but the world seems to get darker and darker. The colors aren't quite as bright as they used to be. But I've also learned in, that darkness takes many forms. If ever an age could be described as dark, it would be the two centuries that followed the collapse of Roman authority in Britain at the beginning of the fifth century. You saw the movie Gladiator, right? Anybody? Years ago? Maybe the movie, um, I think it was King Arthur, about the fall of Britannica or Britain, right? When the Roman Empire kind of began to decay and fall away. Roughly around that time frame, as the Roman Empire in the West fell into disorder, Britain was left weak, it was exposed, and eventually it fell into ruins. Now, archaeology confirms the reality of a rapid urban collapse. It's really kind of stunning when you think about it and research this. There were, there were these big, beautiful, majestic, grand homes and public buildings that were just abandoned. There was rubble and there was junk that accumulated in houses and courtyards. Human corpses rotted in ditches beside roads already crumbling under the onslaught of weeds and weather. A dead dogs were dumped in the ruins and owls took up residence in the gate towers. This is what archaeology tells us. We know that pagan religions ruled as Christianity was weakened. And it wasn't until the middle of the 7th century that Christianity triumphed in lowland Britain and eventually engulfed all of the country. However, the historical record for these years is practically non-existent. So very aptly, what do we call this period of time? The Dark Ages. We just don't know. Darkness takes, obviously, different form in the physical condition called blindness. You know, I like movies. I remember years ago watching the 1992 movie Scent of a Woman. The actor Al Pacino plays a retired Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. He's through an accident. Remember this? He's left blind. And he lives in this small, detached apartment off the house of his niece. A life that was once lived in the limelight of the military is now reduced to an almost invisible existence in northeast New England. 
In one scene in which he is wrestling with whether he should end his life, he cries out with a, a, a line that's now popular, I'm in the dark here. It's a clear metaphor representing physical blindness in the darkness of a perceived meaningless existence. Darkness takes a different form in the Bible. The Bible calls or describes a spiritual darkness. The time before the ministry of Jesus Christ is called darkness. Did you know that? Matthew 4, 16 and 17, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them a light dawned. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the light appears in the darkest of times. It could take comfort for us because it's a very dark place spiritually here in the Pacific Northwest. In fact, that was one of the things that when I was being interviewed for this position that one of the elders, Don Theodore, described Washington as a very dark place spiritually. It's so dark that even the religious leaders of the time of Jesus were in the dark. Consequently, they were leading the people into darkness. Remember this verse in Matthew 15? The disciples come to Jesus and say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are what? Blind guides of the blind. People that are in the dark, have no light, are blind. They can't see. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. It's a time of spiritual darkness when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have looked at the first 20 verses of Matthew, chapter 5. Of course, the first 12 verses describe the character of a citizen of his kingdom. Verses 13 to 16 describe the influence of a citizen of his kingdom. And by the way, how does God use somebody that has a beatitude kind of character? Well, he tells you in verses 13 to 16. He uses you as salt is used and as light is used. That's how God uses people with that kind of character. And last week we saw in these verses, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, the righteousness of a citizen of his kingdom. Read along with me. It says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass in the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." Jesus didn't come to change the word of God, but to fulfill all of its requirements. That's good news for us, right? He reminded the people, and by the way, he's reminding us, even right now, that the word of God is absolute truth. It's therefore eternally relevant. The standard of righteousness that God has always required, it had not changed. This is why our righteousness must surpass 
the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because they had lowered the standard of righteousness through their legalistic, self-righteous, works-based religion. And we would say that it wasn't just Judaism of the time, we would say it's every other world religion of our time, except for Christianity. They've lowered the standard of righteousness. And of course, what is that standard? My own life. Whatever I think or believe and how I live my life, because my good will always outweigh my bad, because I am basically at the base human level, human nature, I'm good. I would say to the person that says that, they've never had children or never been married. That's simple. This morning I want to give you an overview of this ver- of Matthew 5, 17 to 48. That I hope will give you a greater understanding and appreciation as we move forward in this chapter. We will spend most of our time talking about the standard of righteousness. So get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 5. You're just going to listen for this portion of the sermon, but just get to Matthew 5. In those 28 verses, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus is giving us the standards for living in his kingdom. And as he reemphasizes the divine standard given in the law of God in the Old Testament, what he says in these 28 verses, and this is really what you've got to listen to when you read this, and in fact, you can just take your eyes off your Bible right now and just look at me. The inside is infinitely more revealing and important to God than the outside. Okay? The inside is more important than the outside. What you are on the inside is the concern of God. And it has always been this way, as the Old Testament reveals. Just listen to some of these verses I'm going to read. You might remember this one. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the Lord speaking to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. By the way, do you know why there's racism in the world today? Look at the outward appearance. 1 Kings 8, 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So in this verse we see that God responds to men, not on the basis of outward deeds, but on the basis of the heart, which, by the way, God alone knows. As well as my wife knows me, she still does not really know my heart. David says this, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Again, the same emphasis. God's concerned with the inside, not the outside. Psalmist writes, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts 
and minds. Solomon wrote this, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. A man may justify his ways, in other words, but God will weigh his motives. He knows the reason behind why you're doing what you're doing. You cannot hide that. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Again, God looks at the inside. Now we can now see that the standard of God set in the Old Testament to evaluate men and women is the standard of the heart. Now keep in mind, at the time that Jesus is preaching this sermon, there was no New Testament. This is why I'm not quoting any New Testament verses on the heart, and there are plenty. This is all Old Testament. And the standard by which God evaluates men and women, true today, but back at this time, is the standard of the heart. So God could not make the message any clearer. Is God concerned with external behavior? Yes, he is, but only as it is an outworking of an internal righteousness. Because God evaluates the heart. And folks, I'm assuming it's a little heavy in here, a little quiet in here, because this is an unpleasant thing to talk about. It's a scary thought when you consider the condition of the fallen human heart. What little you know of your heart, you're alone, with your thoughts, and what can come out of you, it's scary and oftentimes just flat out ugly. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. That is us. That is the human heart. It is deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So it's beyond our understanding the, the deceit and the sickness of the human heart, the fallen human heart. Now, knowing this, God says, obviously, folks, you need a heart transplant. And I promise to give you a new heart. This is the promise again, the Old Testament, Ezekiel 11, 19 to 21. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. The only way you do what God says you should do is when you have a new heart, a right heart. Now this powerful section, in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, Jesus is calling us, this is God speaking, Our Lord and Savior, our King, is calling us to examine our hearts. And he says, I want you to examine your heart or your hearts repeatedly. Because really, Jesus had no other choice but to drive the people back to the central issue of the heart. Not only because it was always God's standards of righteousness, but also because all the people knew was a purely external religion. That was all that the people knew. The Judaism of the 
that time was far from the true Old Testament law, which God had given. It had gotten lost in the midst of the Jewish tradition. And Jesus had to show them the true word of God and how it relates to the false religious system they had been taught. I like to think of it this way. Jesus is saying, what you have is not God's standard. This, in essence, is what he's saying to the people. What you have is not God's standard. What you have is not God's law. And so I will redefine it for you. And that's exactly what he does through the rest of chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of Matthew. That is his entire Sermon on the Mount. And all three of these chapters are Jesus' explanation of what he said in verses 17 through 20. That the word of God does not change, and that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he shows them God's standard of righteousness. How does he do this? How does he show them God's standards of righteousness? Well, very simply, through repetition. You're in Matthew 5, right? Turn to verses 21 to 22. It says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You've heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you. See that? Do you see that? Good. Verses 27 28. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to, to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. Verses 31 32. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Same pattern. It was said, but I say to you. Verses 33 and 35. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you, verses 38 to 40, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, you awake out there. All right. I know it's dark in here. Verses 43 and 44. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. Six specific illustrations that deal with murder, lust, divorce, vows, retaliation, and loving your enemies. And they all follow a similar pattern. Now please understand that what Jesus is saying 
When he says, your religion teaches you this, but I say unto you, he's not comparing himself with the Old Testament. He's talking about what their religious system taught them. And again, he's saying, your standard is simply too low. It's not only in God's eyes the man who commits murder who is guilty, but the man who is angry is just as guilty and just as liable to be judged. It is not only the man who commits the act of adultery who is guilty, but the one who allows the unclean desire to find root in his heart. It is not only the one who perjures himself, but anyone whose word is not his absolute bond. It's not only wrong to divorce without a bill of divorcement, but it's wrong to divorce without a just cause. In God's sight, not only is there to be justice, but there is to be mercy. We are not only to love our neighbors, but God says we are to love our enemies. That is a much higher standard. That is God's standard of righteousness. Now, in selecting his illustrations, Jesus is very careful. He chooses two commands from Moses and the Ten Commandments. Then he chooses two other rather wider social commandments taken from other portions of the rites of Moses. And finally, he chooses commands that discuss the whole subject of love. So he starts with the basics of life, murder and marriage. And from those very basic things, he moves to a wider set of social relationships, talking about things like truth and justice and honesty. And finally, to the widest possible attitude, love, which reaches as wide as not only your neighbor, but also your enemy. In all of human living, from the individual's purity, to the family, to social relationships, to the wide world of our enemies, we should be characteristically righteous. Where? On the inside. In every area of your life, you are to be righteous on the inside. And that has always been God's standard. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? Who can be in the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. That is a standard of righteousness, and that is a high standard. Let's contrast that with what I'm calling darkness now. Now I opened this sermon talking about darkness. Well, how much spiritual darkness were the people living in at the time of Jesus? Well, just so you know, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, were called the ancients, or men of long ago, and their oral teaching that glossed over the true law of God and added their own thoughts to the revelation of the Old Testament is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5. This is what was taught to the people, not the law and the prophets, simply the oral traditions of the rabbis or the elders. Let me give you an illustration of this that I discovered from Martin Lloyd-Jones. This, I think, will be interesting for you to know this. I didn't know this. 
In the days of the Reformation, prior to the time when the Reformation really took off, the scriptures were not translated into the people's language, which was English. So when you went to a Catholic church, and by a Catholic church, the church from its inception has always been a holy Catholic church. What we understand as a Catholic church today, and what it was, it was the early church, is different. It just became into what we have a Catholic church, and now, at, per the Reformation, now you have Protestant churches. Okay? So when you, time of the Reformation, you go to Catholic church, the Catholic mass was held in Latin. So you went to mass, and you just kind of sat there, because there was no Bible to speak of in the hands of the people. What was read by the priest was read in what? Latin. Nobody understood it. Nobody read it. And the priest would expound upon this Latin text that he would be reading that morning or that day or that time. And the people would simply believe whatever the priest said because they had no basis by which to evaluate. So century went by after century after century. And the Roman Catholic Church developed this false religious system which was never really investigated by the people because they didn't have the Bible in their own language. What the Reformation did more than anything else was give the Bible to the people. And when they began to read the scripture, then they began to see the false system of Catholicism and the truth of the gospel shattered the dark ages. Christianity, as we know it today, was born out of that. And today, because we have the Bible... We can check any religious system to see if it is biblical or not. That's exactly what was going on in our Lord's day. When Israel had gone into captivity in Babylon, remember Daniel, the book of Daniel and all that? They remained there for 70 years. And during that time, historians tell us, for the most part, they lost the Hebrew language. They ceased to speak Hebrew. And they picked up a language known as Aramaic. That's why Daniel is written in, in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so when they came back from captivity, they spoke in Aramaic. And in Jesus' time, what did they speak? Aramaic. Jesus probably taught in Aramaic. And of course, the New Testament was written in what? Greek. But the Jewish people spoke Aramaic. So the rabbis would come along, read the Hebrew, which the people didn't understand, and then interpret it for them. People couldn't argue. They didn't know what it said. So they began to build an entire system of of false Judaism based upon the ignorance of the people regarding the Hebrew text. And so when our Lord says, you have heard that it was said by them of old, he is saying, the religion you have is the oral tradition of the rabbis. Not the written word of God. So the embellishments, the traditions, the interpretations, deletions and additions, it pushed the truth of God into obscurity. This is what you've been hearing, Jesus says. And just as the Roman Catholic Church destroyed the truth by keeping the people ignorant of the scriptures, so the people were ignorant of the scriptures in the time of the rabbis. And because they couldn't speak Hebrew, they couldn't verify what they were getting. Jesus arrives on the scene and says this, I am here to free the law of God from the rabbis' nonsense. You've been in the dark too long. 
Now, do you understand now why Matthew wrote the following? The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. But perhaps even more significantly, as awful as it is being in the dark, Jesus, as we look at the text, he really attacks and he places emphasis on an external works righteousness. And how he does it is even more fascinating. Do you remember what the people thought of the teaching of Jesus? When you read the Gospels, remember what they thought about his teaching? Probably one word would sum it up. Authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. Matthew 7, 28, 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Luke says the same thing, Luke 4, 31, 32. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. What does that mean? Well, not only was the message of Jesus a revolutionary message, because they, for the first time, heard the true words of God. Listen to me. Jesus sets himself up as the authority. He says, I tell you what God's law is. <laughs> I don't do that to you. I will not, I cannot. I don't have that authority. You've heard me say, I am preaching to you this, what is in the text. I am not an originalist. I don't have original ideas. They all come from the text. That's not Jesus. I determine the law for you. I tell you what the law is. And this literally, in that circumstance, if, put yourself in the audience and you are hearing Jesus speak. What would the impact of his words be upon you? I mean, they were shocked. They couldn't believe that he would stand up and say the things he was saying because the people had been taught to reverence the law of God. Let me show you what I mean by reverence the law of God. If you were to go into a synagogue in Jesus' time to worship on the Sabbath, the very first thing to happen in a service is you'd come in and sit down. You'd have the men on one side, women on the other side, and a man would go up to the front. He would pick up all the scrolls of the Old Testament, and he would walk all the way around the synagogue in silence so that the congregation would reverence the law of God. Yet now, here comes Jesus, and he says, I say unto you. And they were just stunned. He sets himself as equal to the law of God. And whereas the prophets always said what? Thus says, says the Lord, right? Well, the rabbis would say, there is a teaching that says. What does Jesus say? I say unto you, or I say to you. He never quoted a rabbi. In fact, he never quoted anything but his own authoritative statement. This is why William Barclay says this, clearly one of two things must be true about Jesus. Either he is mad or unique. Either he's a megalomaniac, or else he's the son of God. No ordinary person would claim what he claimed. 
So as Jesus redefines the standard of righteousness for his kingdom, it leaves us with some serious heart-searching to do. You may be one who goes through life, you've never killed anybody, you may have ever even fought with anybody, but you literally burn inside with anger. Maybe one who's never been unfaithful in your marriage, but you cultivate thoughts of adultery repeatedly. You may be one who divorces for a good reason, but not a biblical reason. You may be one who's never purged himself in a court of law, but your word is not really your bond. You don't always follow through and in your heart, you say things you never mean to keep. You may be one who does not retaliate when wronged, but man, you hold a grudge and you refuse to show mercy. And you may be one, you may want so bad to get even with the person who hurt you. Yet all your life you never do it, and God says it's as if you did. You may be one who loves his neighbor, but you will never seek the welfare of your enemy. See, folks, God judges the evil desire because that's what God is looking at. That's what he sees. He looks at the heart. He looks at the inside. Now, everyone turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to close with this. Because here we find, in the New Testament, what God has clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, I've done this before, you know this, but it's all about the inside. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword in piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, and they bear to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now you remember I told you that the word judge, it's the Greek word kritikos, and it's a critical, fault-finding spirit, and that's what, it's, that's what the Word of God is going to do. You're going to be opened up before the Lord, and he's going to critically analyze the unseen, the heart, the motives, the intentions, the attitudes, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you can't run away from this. Remember I said two things? There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare. It's the idea of, of a wrestling move where you can be wrestled and pinned to a point where you can't move your body. Be, that's part of it. But also that whenever a, a prisoner or someone committed a crime, we have to face the person that they committed the crime against, they would put that knife underneath the, they would tie that like leather rope around the neck and the knife would be pointing up so you couldn't look down. You were forced to look at the person that you wronged. That's what's going to happen here. You're going to be totally locked down, unable to move, 
open and laid bare to what? The eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do we have to give an account? And God will use his word and will critically look inside you and expose you. So all the masks that we are now wearing right now, even in this room, are gone. Who you really are, the true you, is there for the Lord to judge. Now that's not a fun thought, is it? But it's the same thing that was said in the Old Testament. God looks at the heart. But there's good news. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, remember, this is so bad, it's just rough. Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have one who understands the fallen human condition and sympathizes with our weaknesses. In other words, he's walked a mile in our moccasins. He knows what that's like. But even better than that, not only does he know what it's like, he took care of our problem. He passed God's test of righteousness for us. Therefore, it's why we have verse 16. We can boldly, we can confidently go before our Heavenly Father. And what is it that we need? Those who are confess their sin find comfort. Those who are merciful find mercy. We can find comfort. We can find mercy. That sick, deceitful, corrupt, beyond human understanding heart has been replaced by the very heart of Jesus Christ. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus Christ. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, it's all about the heart. I look at the inside. My standard of righteousness isn't the external, only as the external relates to an internal righteousness. And so we're called to look at our heart. And that's what we're going to look at. These topics, murder, lust, divorce, vows, retaliation, love, and so on. And it's going to be a, about the heart. Because you can do all, all the right things, and yet you'd be just wicked inside. You can say the right things and not mean it. You can never do any of those things that are mentioned and still have this wicked heart. That's God's standard of righteousness. And it's a high standard, it's a tough standard. But that's his standard. And he says this is a, the behavior, the standard of righteousness that is, I expect from a citizen of my kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, it is a high standard that you've set. There's no doubt about it. And it leaves us feeling overwhelmed. 
I pray that those of us who are feeling overwhelmed, and even those of us who are not, still may be driven to our knees in the pursuit of you out of a grateful heart because you have met the standard of righteousness for us. You've paid the penalty for our sin. You came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill all the requirements of the law for us. And we ask that you would create in us clean hands and a pure heart. And we know as well that the only way that we can live the kingdom life that you're calling us to is in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that we would be strengthened with his power inside and draw upon the ability and the desire to live the life that you call us to live, that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, it is a dark time in the history of our nation. We are living in a culture that is no longer Christian, that is hostile to conservative Christian values. And the only way that this world will be changed is from the inside out, from your people living out the kingdom character that you lay out so clearly in the Beatitudes. And then through that character, you're able to influence the world as we are salt and light. Thank you for the very practical application that we'll find as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. What a masterful sermon. Lord, we pray for your strength, that we would draw upon it moment by moment, and that in all we do would be to the praise of your glory. And all God's people said, amen. If you would stand with me, let's close with a song. You can um, quietly exit or get something to drink before you go and enjoy your gray day and all the rain and the possible mudslides. And it also happens this time of year. Anything else I can add to that, I don't know. No, forget seeing the sun until July. Um, what else? <laughs> That's worship. <laughs>